My dad wasn't rich, and neither am I, but neither one of us ever lacked for our needs. And as I've traveled to other countries, I have changed my definition of what being rich is. And in that perspective, I would definitely say that I am rich. My dad didn't leave me any money, but he passed along his greatest riches. He passed along his greatest riches. He did his best to give me what he valued the most, which was a relationship with Christ. And I just want to reflect on that richness of our relationship with Christ in these couple of weeks coming up to Thanksgiving. I've titled my sermon, The Best Reason for the Season, and the best reason for the season hasn't changed. It is still salvation in Christ. It's good to be thankful for your home, for your car, for your job, for your family. It's good to be thankful for all those things, but the best reason for the season is still salvation in Christ. And we just want to spend some time uh, reveling in our salvation, if you will, from Ephesians chapter 1. Please follow as I read. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us with all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself." that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, Do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints." And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, 
according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, and not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Verse 19, excuse me, verse um, 18, talks about the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints. We have riches in Christ, and we want to just understand a few of those riches today. We want to understand, first of all, that God has enriched us, and part of our riches are not here, but already in heaven. Look at verse three. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, literally, in Christ. What does it mean for us to have blessings in the heavenlies or in the heavenly places? We need to take a little bit of a a side trip here and and just understand something about God as we would understand his blessings to us. God reveals his existence to us in two perspectives. Now I'm fully aware that I am a created being, a finite being about to talk about the infinite God. And you should be aware of that as well. And you should be aware that God's word is all that we know about God. And so he has done his best to help us understand him, but I'm aware that perhaps even in that, our our understanding may not be as perfect and complete as we might like in our human curiosity. But God has chosen to to help us understand that his existence, to our human way of thinking, there are two parts to his existence. To God's way of thinking, there's only one. But the first part of that that we are well familiar with, we use this term omnipresent or everywhere present, all present. God exists everywhere at once. In Ephesians 4, we read this, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, and through all, and in you all. An omnipresent God. One of the great texts that talks about God's omnipresence is Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. You know, the scripture elsewhere says men love darkness better than Uh, darkness better than light because their deeds are evil? Why does so much wickedness go on at night? Because people feel like nobody can see what's going on. And yet God is everywhere. 
When I was early in the ministry, I was trying to teach this to junior high boys in a Sunday school class. I had about 12 of them in the furnace room of the church, literally. And I'm trying, and these guys were not interested in the Bible. And I'm trying to say, God is everywhere. And, and I had heard in recent weeks that the place at the school where they did their wickedness was behind the grandstand. And so I kind of waxed eloquent. God sees you at home, and he sees you here, and he sees you there, and he even sees you behind the grandstand. Wow. <laughs> Wherever it is you think God is not, you're wrong. God is everywhere. Now, that's not the same as pantheism, which would teach us that God is literally in everything and everything is God. That's not the same. We're talking about a God who is everywhere present at once. It certainly boggles the mind, but again, we remember that we are the finite trying to understand the infinite. So God reveals himself to us as being omnipresent, but he also and, and of course, the omnipresence is a blessing and a motivation. To junior high boys, it's a motivation. To those who are struggling, perhaps, on a, on a bed of sickness, it is a blessing to know that God is there. But God also is transcendent. He reveals himself to us. And I'm using these theological terms on purpose because, frankly, I think it would be a good thing for you to learn them. He is omnipresent, and he is transcendent. Transcendent means he is above us. He is above us, he is above the earth. There is a sense in which God has a manifestation of his presence that we can't see. And in the scripture, it is often revealed to us as above. It could well be that God is just trying to get us, you know, us human beings, when we think of something really magnificent, we go, well, way out there in space, that, that's really something. And it could be that God just wants us to understand that it is, it is way above us in, in terms of our ability to comprehend. We're familiar with the fact that the apostle Paul had that thorn in the flesh. God wanted to keep him from being proud. Well, the thing he wanted to keep him being proud about was he had a vision of God in his transcendent glory. We read about it here in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 12. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man. Now, the Apostle Paul talks about himself in the second person here. I know a man who, in, who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know. The Apostle Paul is saying, I'm not sure if I had a vision or if God actually caught me up to heaven. He said, I really don't know what happened. But what he did know was I, such a one was caught up to the third heaven, okay? How many heavens are there, class? Three, because God tells us there is. What's the first heaven? We don't call this the heaven, but what is the first heaven? It's our atmosphere. And the second heaven is what we call outer space. And the third heaven, which may be a place, but probably isn't a place. It's the very presence of God. I know such a one was caught up to the third heaven, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows how he was caught up into paradise. 
There's a definition of the third heaven. He was caught up into paradise, and he heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to speak. He heard the talk of heaven. Okay? Either it was a language he couldn't understand, or he was just plain forbidden to repeat what he had heard. But he was there, and, and because it was so magnificent, God said, I'm going to have to give you something to keep you humble as you go forward. That's what the thorn in the flesh was all about. But here's what I want you to understand today. The Apostle Paul was very much aware of God every day in his life, and yet there was a time when he was caught up face to face with God. These two realms of God's existence to our way of thinking, the omnipresent realm of God's existence and the very presence of God, the face-to-face meeting with God. And that's why we read scriptures like this. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven. Have you ever stopped to think about it? Well, he's right here with me. Why couldn't I say our Father in Ferndale? Well, you could. And yet God has chosen to help you understand that in a very great sense, he is transcendent. He is above us. He does see it all at once. Our Father who art in heaven. In Job chapter 1, verse 6, there was a day when the sons of God, the angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Again, does God know where Satan is at all time? Yes, he does, just like he knows where you are at all times. And yet there is this sense of what we might call the throne room of God, the very presence of God, and Satan came into that presence. In Hebrews 1.3, we read about Jesus, who being the, the brightness of his glory and the express image of God's person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, there's a, there's a, a regal perspective on this. In other words, the person who sits at the right hand of the king is the right hand of the king. It, it's an important place, and so God's trying to tell us something about Christ's place in the universe, But he also uses this image of up there and Christ sitting down by the throne of God. And so, very simply, I I, want to make this statement and then come back to these blessings. It's absolutely proper for us to conceive of God as up there and right here. We should really have a dual perspective. But God also reveals our existence in two perspectives. And and the first one, of course, is is right here, right now. Uh, This is real. Uh, We don't believe this is uh, an imagination or a myth. You know, the old old, uh, joke from the uh, philosophical religion. Person got run over by a steamroller. And they said, you're not flat, you just think you're flat. No, this is real. We are here. We touch each other. We see each other. We don't need to have any of those crazy philosophical discussions. But when we believe in Christ, we come into a new realm of existence, and that is we exist in heaven with him right now. 
Now, if you're like me, you don't get up in the morning and think, I'm in heaven. Maybe when you go to bed at night and you put the covers over and it's all warm, then you think you're in heaven. But we exist in heaven with God and we exist here on earth at the same time. Um, Look at chapter two of Ephesians, please. Chapter two of Ephesians, let me see, no, it's not there. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Before we were saved, God says we're locked in our sin. Verse two, in which we once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, filling the desires of the flesh and the mind. And we were by nature the children of wrath just as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And verse six, he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You're sitting in heaven and in Ferndale. You have an existence in heaven as well as you have an existence here. Paul talked about it in Philippians 3. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, I tell you even weeping, they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship, our real home country, is heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior. Uh, I am a natural-born U.S. citizen. I have a passport that proves that when I go to other countries. But God says this earthly life is a temporary life. Our real citizenship, our real home, our real place where we belong is heaven. That is our real existence today, our real spiritual existence. And that's why... This passage is true. While we don't look at the things that are seen, the earthly things, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen all around us are temporary, but the things which are not seen in heaven, those are eternal. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, to be rather absent from the body and present with the Lord. The reason you can close your eyes for the last time on earth and wake up in heaven is because you're already there. Your body goes to the ground or wherever it's placed, inconsequential, because someday God will reconstitute you your body and soul. We have an existence in heaven, and when our physical body dies, our heavenly existence becomes our whole reality. We have a very real here and now in which God expects us to work at becoming more like Christ, but we also have an existence far more than just the physical. And when we stop to take account of our life and only focus on the earthly and physical joys or sorrows, 
we're missing the greatest part of our reality, which is eternal and permanent. Now turn back with me to, to Ephesians 1. And with that, with that foundation laid, let's read verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every one of the blessings we're going to read about have a reality now and a reality there in heaven now, which will be our complete reality someday. And the first one of those is in verse 2, excuse me, verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him. The, uh, this word chose here, the word chose is often translated elect or election when it's in a different grammatical form, as in when it's a verb, it's chose, when it's a noun, it's elect or election. Many people struggle with this doctrine, and I would like to make it just as simple as I can and help you understand it so that it is a blessing to you. It's, the scripture says God did something before the foundation of the world that would result in us becoming holy and without blame before him. Holy and without blame is a synonym for salvation. When you accept Christ, you become holy and without blame. What did God do before the foundation of the world? I would just say this. Election means God initiated our salvation. God initiated our salvation. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean this, what Jesus said. No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus said, we don't come to Christ on our own. The question that I would ask you, and maybe you've never thought about it, do you really think you were so spiritually inclined that you came seeking God and didn't give up till you found him? Everybody I know who's come to the Lord has come somewhat, I hate to use this word, but somewhat reluctantly. It's almost as though God throws a rope down and lassos us and pulls us in one hand at a time. I would ask you a simple question. The first time ever in your life when you heard this message, Christ died for your sins and you need to believe in him or else you're gonna go to hell. The very first time you heard that, did you jump out of your chair and run down and say, oh pastor, please pray with me so I can believe in Jesus? No, I think if you are an average Christian, you had to hear that truth and more truth and over and over, and, and you wrestled with God a little bit. He had that rope around you, and he was pulling, and you were pulling back, and finally you said, okay. You know, that's, Romans 3 says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks are all sinners, as it is written, there is no one righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. There is none who seeks after God. Now, I am fully aware. 
I am fully aware that in the process of us coming to Christ, as he starts to pull that rope in, he does things around us. He creates circumstances, and our will does start to change because we start to think, I need to find God's solution for this problem I'm in, and whatever it is, and we, start to, we do start to look to God, we do start to seek for God, but we do that because God threw that rope and started pulling us in. We were all nuns before God sought us. The blessing that is here is this. We love him because he first loved us. God set things in motion in my life before I was born so that I would come to Christ. You know, I've, I've often thought, what does it mean that God did something in eternity past to save me? I think it means more than, he just, than him just putting his finger down. I think it means him causing my mom and dad to become Christians and to become serious disciples so much so that they prayed for their children before they were even conceived. God put all of those things in motion so that I would be in a place where it would be possible for me to hear the gospel and come to faith in him. And for you, everybody's story's a little bit unique. Perhaps your parents, perhaps your friend, perhaps here, perhaps there. But if you're in Christ today, the reason God has told us about this truth is so that we might look up to heaven and say, thank you for not taking no for an answer. Thank you for doing whatever it took to get me to that point where I could believe. That's why God has allowed us, you might say he, he's opened back the curtain and let us see into eternity past. There's a sense in which God didn't even need to tell this to us, did he? But he did so that we would praise him, so that we would say, oh God, thank you for my salvation. God didn't stop at just getting us out of hell. You know, there's a sense in which once we believe in Christ, we're on the path to heaven, we're, we're on the path away from hell, and you know, God could have just stepped back and said, okay, my work is done. But he didn't. That was just the beginning of his work. Look with me at verse four again. And the, the last little phrase, in love, probably should go with verse five. In love, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will. He predestined us to that adoption of sons and in verse 4, it says he, pre, he, he chose us so that we would be holy and without blame. Holy and without blame. Now, again, none of us are perfect yet, but we're on that path. We get to be holy. And so what that tells me is that God has recreated me. He is in the process of recreating me. I, I think I probably should have put a hyphen right in there, recreation. I was sinful. Ephesians 2 says I was locked in my sin, but now I'm on the path to holiness. 
Second Peter says, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, so that we can escape the corruption that is in the world through lust, and so that we can partake of the divine nature. One of the reality shows that I enjoy very much is called Night Watch, and it's about the St. Louis, not St. Louis, the New Orleans police, fire, and EMS, and their responses between eight at night and four in the morning. And at the beginning of that show, they say there are as many as a thousand emergency calls overnight in the city of New Orleans. And last night, on, or the one that I watched last night, we have it recorded, so I don't know what night it's on, but um, the, the fellow who is a paramedic is, is doing a voiceover, and he said, New Orleans is a great city, but it has a dark side. And you have to embrace the dark side and realize that we're there to help people. He's basically saying there's a lot of wickedness and a lot of sin. He didn't use those words, but you know, people are shooting each other and so on and so forth. And he sees himself as one there to help. You know that all of the physical violence that we see in the world is an example of the corruption that is in the world through lust. Why do people shoot each other? Why do people stab each other? Why do people have these terrible family relationships? It is because of sin and because they haven't developed into the person of Christ yet. Christian, I would challenge you today to stop looking at holiness and righteousness as a requirement or a duty of God and look at it as an opportunity to escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. We get to be like Christ, which means... We are not stuck in our humanness and what it creates. We don't have to be riddled with anxiety because of the uncertainty of the economics in our country. Now that's a good reason to be anxious, I get that. But God says he's gonna take care of us and we can rest in that. We don't have, in to, to, we don't have to give in to the sin that ruins families. We can have good families. We don't have to be enslaved to drugs or alcohol or pornography or fame or fortune or power. We don't have to repeat the cycle of family destruction that may have existed prior to our family. The sins of the father and the mother don't have to pass to the son or the daughter. We can live in peace and joy and purpose because we have the life of Christ growing inside. We have the opportunity, the calling, the empowerment, the destiny from God to be holy and without blame before him in love. How did God do that? Look at verse seven. How did God cause us to be holy and without blame? In him we have the redemption through, we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of sins. The word redemption means that we have been freed from what was enslaving us. The, the, the original word was used in that context of, of a slave being purchased out of slavery. We have the forgiveness of sin in him, which means we are free. And that salvation, that redemption came through the blood of Christ. In Hebrews 10, we read this, for the law having a shadow of the good things to come. The law is talking about the Old Testament and the whole worship system and everything that was involved. And they had a shadow of those good things, but not the very image of the things. It could never with those animal sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, it could never make those who approach perfect or take away their sin. For then they would not, would they not have ceased to be offered? In other words, if, if a guy brought a sacrifice and the result of that sacrifice was his sin was removed, said so he stopped offering sacrifices but it didn't remove. They would, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, they would have had no more awareness or consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he, Jesus, came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus paid for our sins. The reason Jesus had a human body was not only to live a perfect life and to resist sin and be an example to us, but so that he might shed his blood, die a death in our place. And Peter says, you were not redeemed, bought back out of sin with corruptible things like silver or gold, some human things from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. You were bought back, you were redeemed out of sin by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We get some idea of the closeness of the three persons of the Trinity. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that God the Father suffered when Jesus died on the cross? And that the Holy Spirit suffered when Jesus died on the cross? Have you buried a loved one? Did you suffer and all of the people around you? God suffered. Only Jesus paid for our sin, but the whole Trinity suffered for us. God spared no expense to save your soul. Have you ever thought about whether you're worth saving? You ever looked up to heaven and say, good job, God? No, because that would be blasphemous, I guess. In fact, we often think just the opposite. Man, 
You know, I don't deserve. And that is a worshipful thought. We don't deserve what God did. We should spare no expense in our worship of God. Either at Christmas or Thanksgiving every year, our whole family gets together. This year it'll be Thanksgiving. And Sue has a tradition, make sure our kids aren't here. Sue has a tradition of buying them all new pajamas. And it's a big deal. Grandma gives all the kids new pajamas. I don't ever get any. I don't know what that's about. But. <laughs> this year she's making them Seahawks pajamas. Oh, yes. We went to Joanna's and got fabric. We have been working hard. (laughs) Grandma loves the grandkids. It's not hard for her to sacrifice for them. Uh, They won't appreciate it nearly as much as the effort she puts into it. God spared no expense for you. No expense. God loves you so much that he went to the greatest length he possibly could to save you. And that's why this passage is such an encouragement to us. What shall we say then as a response to this? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If God be for us, who could be against us? And the basis of understanding that is this great gift of his son to pay for our sin. But God wasn't done blessing us just yet. We're gonna look at one more of these today. Not only did God enrich us, he chose us, he recreated us, he freed us, but he adopted us into his family. And one of the benefits of that adoption is explained by Paul in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons And because you're sons, here's the benefit. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The benefit, first of all, is relationship. We are related and connected to God in a personal way. But look at this one. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, you're an heir of God through Christ. Do you know what God owns? What? Everything. Everything. And you're an heir. As I said earlier, my dad didn't leave me anything. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But he gave me his riches. I get to be an heir of the world. And of course, the Holy Spirit does confirm our relationship. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of bondage 
but you receive the spirit of adoption. What's the spirit of adoption? It's an internal spirit where we say, God is my father, my daddy, this word here. The spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. But as, I'm gonna back up there. We, you know, I, I didn't learn this, honestly, until probably 10, 15 years ago, that the reason I'm confident about heaven is not me. It's because the Holy Spirit is in me. And so whenever I am contemplating heaven, I have this strong understanding that that's where I'm headed. What's that? Back to nature? No, to heaven, not back to nature. And I understand that the reason I am able to do that is because I have received Christ. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. How wonderful that God makes it easy for us to become his children and to receive these blessings. Our family is renting a big house in Leavenworth so we can all get together without Grandpa going crazy. I mean, so they have room to have fun and play. Uh, many of you will be gathering with family and friends. But some of you might not be that excited about Thanksgiving because maybe your earthly life isn't that perfect. But both the haves and the have-nots need to become truly gratefuls by focusing on the true eternal blessings of God. If you want to have a perfect Thanksgiving this year, spend time with God reveling in his blessings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for reaching down and bringing us to yourself and giving us these great blessings of relationship with you. Help us to be truly thankful in our souls for all that you have done. Help us to, help us to look past this world and see all that you have done for us and realize the great blessings we have. May you be honored today, this Thanksgiving season. I pray in Christ's name, amen.